Well, if you would, please turn to Jonah. Begin in verse 1. We won't get very far today. Verse 1. Titled this one, From Hero to Zero. And it is part one. This will be the hero side of things. Next week you'll get the zero side of Jonah. Many of us know a good portion of this uh, story in the Old Testament. And if you are here for the first time today, um, you are in luck. We are beginning a new book. It's very timely. Uh, we're starting this, this New Testament series through the book of Jonah. The Old Testament series through the book of Jonah. And you know, Jonah's regarded as what they call one of the 12 minor prophets in Israel. Uh, if you look at the minor prophets, it's Hosea through Malachi right before the New Testament starts. And they're, they're called minor not because their message is minor. Their message is actually very major, but their, their books are shorter. So they're considered the minor prophets. And uh, the minor prophets are actually one of the most overlooked portions of our Bibles. And uh, though your, your Bible, as you look at the Gospels and the New Testament epistles, probably Genesis and some of the Psalms, though they're probably pretty well marked in your Bible, it's actually quite likely that the minor prophets are an area that isn't very used at all. In fact, the pages are probably quite clean. Excuse me, quite clean. And uh, you probably haven't looked a lot at Zephaniah or Obadiah, possibly not Jonah either. Perhaps even the pages are still stuck together from the gold or silver leaf on the edge in these areas of your Bible there. So you might be a little bit embarrassed as the person next to you is, is watching you trying to separate the pages of Jonah uh, to read it along with us for the first time. Of course, we've all certainly heard of the prophet Jonah. We've probably colored pictures of him at one time or another, right? Few of us have ever ventured to read through Jonah to see what it actually says. Uh, that is unfortunate. It is only four short chapters. Two pages on a regular Bible. If you've got a study Bible, it might take up four. But it is very short. If you're, if you're a Christian here today, there's going to come a day where you're going to meet the prophet Jonah in heaven. And it's likely that he's going to ask you, it's like, how did you like my book? And you'll have to respond and say, well, you know, I never really had time to get around to it. Jonah might say in such a situation that, you know, well, that's, that's too bad. It's too bad. If you had read it, perhaps you might have avoided some of the mistakes that I made while I was still on the earth in ministry and um, that day will come to spare us all this unfortunate introduction that we'll have with Jonah we're going to take a look at him and work through this wonderful book together it has a lot to say about Jonah as a man it's going to say a whole lot about us as people of God as well in case you hadn't noticed Jonah is not a fictional storybook character not at all this book was written as a historical narrative he was a genuine prophet of God who lived during the reign of a king called King Jeroboam II. We just read about him earlier in 2 Kings. He was king of Israel. He reigned, we know the exact years, 793 B.C. to 753 B.C. So we're looking at about 800 years before Christ was born. It's a time when Israel was enjoying a period of relative peace and prosperity their sworn enemy that was called Assyria was to the north, and it had been weakened to the point 
that Israel was able to not only restore, but to expand her borders. This was a, a, a period when Israel had a, a deserved reputation, a really bad reputation, for being especially cruel to their enemies. That's the reason that God gave Israel uh, a period of rest from Assyria. And uh, Assyria was especially cruel. Even by their own inscriptions, they documented how they would flay their enemies alive, pin them to their city walls, and pile, pile their skulls up in heaps. That's even what they say about themselves. They were a dreadful people. They struck fear into every nation around them. In fact, right before this time period we're going to study with Jonah, about 50 years earlier, actually, there was a really big and bad general that came down from Assyria and he was seeking out a prophet whereby he could go dip in the Jordan seven times to be cleansed of his leprosy. Remember who that general was? Naaman. Yes, Naaman himself. And uh, the Assyrians were really big, bad boys. They were. Um, but uh, these Assyrians who were renowned for raiding Israelite villages and, and taking the young Israelite women as uh, slaves, they began getting raided themselves. There were tribes to the north of them that were coming down from the mountains, and uh, Assyria had become weakened from the tribes around them that were starting to, uh, to penetrate their defenses. And in the meantime... Here to Israel comes a little-known prophet from a little town in Galilee. His name is Jonah, and his name Jonah means dove, simply dove. And he was from a small town. It was about three miles northeast of Nazareth. It was called Gath-Hefer. And Gath-Hefer in Hebrew means it's a wine press of digging. So I have a photo here of a wine press of digging. It's hewn out of the rock, you will see. In the back area, this is an actual one in Israel now, is where they would pile the grapes, and they would, they would press out the grapes, and, and it would continue to uh, filter through. You can see the, the open inlet there on the left to go into different phases, and they would separate out for the making of wine. This is what an ancient wine press looked like. In fact, it's one of the few types of archaeological uh, uh, remains that we find from this era, actually, that we're discussing today. So that is a wine press. Jonah was from a town that was known for, named after, making wine. And in fact, after he died, his body was buried there, and there is an early church father named Jerome, who uh, lived around 350 A.D., and Jerome actually wrote what we know as the Latin Vulgate. And Jerome visited the grave of Jonah. In fact, you yourself could have visited the grave of Jonah up until 2014. That is when ISIS exploded it into many millions of pieces. They destroyed um, that. People say, well, why would they go after that? Why would they destroy that? Whether it was the actual location or whether it was a, a location that symbolized it, why would they go after that? We're going to see as we study through this, Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. And then he was resurrected. This is a picture of Christ that we're going to see through this book, a, a foreshadowing of Christ. And the enemy of God doesn't want anything, any, any reminder of that around. So we have this prophet named Jonah. He visits the king of Israel in his day, and he tells him, you know what, I've got a message for you, king. 
And from our reading in 2 Kings chapter 14, Jonah tells the king in some fashion, in some words, King, you are going to restore the borders of Israel. It's going to be from the entrance of Hamath, that would be far north Syria, all the way down to the Sea of Arabah, that would be the Dead Sea in the south. So this is a huge area that we're talking about here. And uh, it's going to be, by the way, according to the word of the Lord. It's going to happen. The Lord God of Israel uh, is going to uh, expand Israel's borders. And the king probably says, you don't say. Well, who are you? And he would have to respond, I'm a dove. And I come from a place of wine presses. Interesting how the Hebrew ties in there. In, in, the, in accordance with Jonah's prophecy, Assyria became weakened. God knew that was going to happen. He worked through that. And as a result, this King Jeroboam II led Israel into a period of unprecedented peace and prosperity for 41 years. He was the longest uh, reigning uh, king with any strength in, nor in the northern tribes throughout the history after the separation between Rehoboam and Jeroboam I. He was very successful, Jer Jeroboam II. And, and Jonah says, you're going to expand these borders. Assyria is going to be weakened. How do you think that made Jonah look with the northern tribes? It may have looked pretty good, didn't it? It would have elevated that prophet to hero status in their eyes after they had suffered for so long uh, at the hands of Assyria. He might have received applause even as he accolades as he walked down the street. And people would say, well, there's our dove. There he goes. Man, he told us about all this good stuff that was going to happen. We really like him. He brought us the word of God about peace and prosperity and strength. Now that's what a successful prophet looks like, they might say. might hear that today. How about in the eyes of the king? You know, do you think that, that Jonah uh, was probably on the king's Christmas list? If they had such a thing for a certain celebration, probably Probably very popular with the king. Probably got some boxes of chocolates or a fruitcake or whatever they would send at that time during Passover. But there was a serious problem. 2 Kings 14 verse 23 says this, Jeroboam the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned for 41 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. So Jeroboam II, the king that Jonah went to, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, just as Jeroboam I had done. And he caused Israel to repeat these same sins that they were stuck in generation after generation. And to, to understand the severity of these sins, we have to look back at 1 Kings chapter 12. I'll give you a little profile here. This was after the northern kingdom was torn from Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And, and after the ten tribes of the north followed Jeroboam the first into idolatry. And 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 26, describes this treachery that God saw. It says that, that Jeroboam, this is the first Jeroboam, said in his heart, If this people go up after up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. 
and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. And he said to Israel, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods. Those are the two calves. O Israel, these gods brought you up from the land of Egypt. Really. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one even as far as Dan. And he made houses on the high places and made priests from among the people who were not the sons of Levi. So Jeroboam I had created a separate religion. He had a separate priesthood. He had separate places, locations of worship. Completely idolatrous. Prevented the people from going down into Jerusalem. Gave them an alternative. People are always searching for an alternative, aren't they? Closer, at home, closer to home, more convenient. And Jeroboam II, the son of Joash, he continues in these same false, idolatrous, uh, religious works during the time of Jonah. And, and that false worship, it was evil in the sight of God. So what does God do? Something like that. What would God do? Well, I'll tell you what he did. He sent two prophets to King Jeroboam. Anybody remember their names? To cry out against him? Hosea and Amos. Hosea and Amos. And they both prophesied themselves. They had a word for Jeroboam. And they said that unless Israel turns from their idolatry, that God was going to bring upon them exile out of the land. They said, you're going to be out of here. You need to turn and uh, repent. Now, it, it's really difficult for those of us who are living under the new covenant to understand just how serious these prophecies were by Amos and Hosea. But exile for Israel or Judah, either one, that's really bad news for the covenant people of God. God's covenant blessing toward Israel, it was contingent on two primary things. First, obedience to the covenantal law. Second, you have to be in the land. Not in the land, no blessing. So uh, for a prophet to come and call out the people for their disobedience, their idolatry, their spiritual harlotry, that was bad enough. But to say that God is going to kick you out of the land, that could get a prophet killed. That was serious, uh, a serious situation. And these two prophets, they declared judgment during this same reign here of Jeroboam. And Jeroboam's like, well, this really stinks. This really stinks. Listen to what they said. Here's Hosea chapter 1. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Berai, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, those were the tribes to the north, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. There's the northern kingdoms. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. Do you remember what Hosea's specific prophecy was for the northern tribes? He has one. This was specifically for Jeroboam in the northern kingdom. 
It's recorded in Hosea 9, verse 1. Do not rejoice, O Israel, for you have played the harlot. Forsaking your God, you have loved harlot's earnings on every threshing floor. Threshing floor and wine press will not feed them. And the new wine will fail them. They will not remain in the Lord's land, but Ephraim will return to Egypt. Well, Ephraim is just another term for Israel. And return to Egypt means that Israel is going to return to captivity. You think those golden calves took you out of captivity? You're going back to captivity. And did Hosea tell him where? He told him exactly where. Chapter 9, verse 3. And in Assyria you will eat unclean food. That's what Jeroboam got to hear from Hosea. Why do you think Jeroboam liked that? Not very well, not very well. Well, about the same time in that same period, another prophet of God came to Jeroboam in the northern kingdom. His name was Amos. And, and he just piled on, added a little more to it. Amos chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders of Tekoa, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. Again, the same folks. What was his message to Jeroboam? We get part of it in Amos 7, verse 9. Amos says, The high places of Isaac will be desolated, and the sanctuaries of Israel will be laid waste. Then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam, God says, with the sword. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, this is one of the false priests, sent word to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is unable to endure all of his words. For thus Amos says, Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will certainly go from its land to exile. Round two. So we have to ask, did, did Amos also tell King Jeroboam where they were going to go into exile? He did. In Amos 5, verse 27, he said, Because of your gods which you have made for yourself, therefore I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So exile beyond Damascus, what land do you think that is? Assyria. Again, Assyria. And uh, Jeroboam's false priest, Amaziah, he gave the king's response to Amos, and it goes something like this. Amos 7.12. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee away to the land of Judah, and there eat bread and do your prophesying. So what do they say? Scram. We don't need your word around here. Go down to Judah. Speak to them. Go back to Judah, Amos. And, and Amos's name actually means burden. So, so go back to Judah, you burden. You're nothing but a burden. Go away. We've got our own prophet here in, in Israel. His name is Dove. And, and he didn't say anything about God's judgment. In fact, Jonah actually prophesied that we were going to restore borders. We're going to expand borders. And that's exactly what happened. So Jonah's our man. Jonah is our man. And, and, and we also have to remember at this same time, Jeroboam II had become exceedingly powerful. By the time Amos and Hosea had gotten to him, he was the most powerful king to ever rule the northern tribes. Very successful. 
And he did so at the word of the Lord through the prophet Jonah. There's this conundrum. And you can imagine the conversation when Amaziah returned back to Jeroboam. Jeroboam would ask Amaziah something to the effect, probably, well, what did Amos say? What did he say about me? And Amaziah would reply, Amos and Hosea have both said, Israel is going to exile in Assyria. And, and, and they're also saying that we're going to run out of wine. We're going to run out of food as well. And, and oh yeah, Jeroboam, you and your family are going to die by the sword. That's what you get from them. And I would think that Jeroboam of this type, well, what has Jonah said? What about Jonah? You know what? Let's call in Jonah. Let's see if we can find Jonah. He's been right every time before. Um, Hosea and Amos say that we're going to run out of wine. We've got a prophet here, Jonah, that actually comes from the wine press, the area of the wine. So they might ask Jonah, you know, what is it with, with these prophets from down south? You know, they say God is telling me that, that we're going to go into exile. But you've correctly prophesied to us, Jonah, that we're expanding our borders, and, and that's exactly what has happened, Jonah. And we trust you. The Lord speaks to you. We know that. You've been our friend. Have you got any word, Jonah, on this Assyria thing? That's what we're getting from these other guys. What is the problem with these other guys? And you know, perhaps Jonah would have responded after spending all that time up, up in Israel. He might have said something like, well, you know, they're, they're probably pretty decent guys. You know, they're a little worked up, a little, uh, they got a pretty hard message. They might have their theology mixed up. You know, there are some bad seminaries down by the Dead Sea. Maybe they, maybe they graduated from one of them. Who knows? Um, but God hasn't said anything to me. The word I got is expanded borders and, uh, and prosperity. Jeroboam and Amaziah would gladly like the word from Jonah, not so much from Amos and Hosea. And they might rightly say to themselves, you know, after all, we've been experiencing years of peace and prosperity. Our borders have become enlarged to the greatest extent they've been since King David. We think things are going pretty well. We don't see any problem here. By the looks of our economy, God must be just fine with us and our golden calves. Sound familiar? We'll get to that in a moment. And the king then would turn away, walk away for a few minutes perhaps to discuss to Amaziah a more expansion of the kingdom. And suddenly Jonah 1.1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Arise, Jonah. Go to Nineveh, that great city. Well, Nineveh, that's the capital of Assyria. What in the world am I going to do in Assyria? And perhaps later Jeroboam would return and ask the servant, well, where'd Jonah go? Saul's servant could say, I don't know. He left in a hurry and he said he's getting on a ship to Tarshish. He's out of here. Now granted, part of what I've just told you is conjecture. Part of it is conjecture, but it isn't real loose conjecture. The proposal is actually built around a number of facts that we have. And, and my hope is that you might get around to questioning any pre preconceived notions you have about Jonah and the great fish uh, that you've had since Sunday school. Um, because a lot of what we have previously heard about Jonah 
is exactly that, conjecture. And we have to abandon some of what we've learned in order to look at what God's Word says through the book. We have very little information about Jonah himself beyond this book. But what we have is very reliable. Jonah was a genuine prophet. We recognize this from Jesus himself, who affirmed it, saying in Matthew 12, 40, For just as the Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment, and they will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus said. So Jesus assures everyone, Jonah, it's not a coloring book legend. He's not just a story. He was a genuine prophet who spoke on the behalf of God. And and, and there are many other things we know for sure that can help us fill in these blanks as we progress through Jonah. He prophesied that the territory of Israel would be greatly expanded with King Jeroboam. It did. Uh, We know that there were 41 years of prosperity and peace with Jeroboam. So from this we can conclude that Jonah's prediction of an expanded kingdom came early on in Jeroboam's reign. It wasn't towards the end, it was early on, possibly even before. And we can reasonably accept then that this prophecy concerning Nineveh was after the prophecy of expansion. That this word to go to Nineveh came later on after King Jeroboam had had great success. We also know that this period in Israel, the northern tribes, was, was a period of fierce nationalism. Very prideful. Very arrogant. They were really p- prideful of their pagan nation and all that it stood for. Their heritage. Therefore, Jonah's first prophecy of prosperity and expansion, it would have made the prophet especially popular with the king and the people. We know from Scripture that the prophecies of Amos and Hosea came to Jeroboam later in his reign, late in the reign, closer to around 760 B.C. And uh, we know from ancient records that during the same time period that Israel was experiencing all this prosperity, Assyria was suffering severe famine. Two severe famines right around 760 uh, B.C. And they had a total solar eclipse on June 15, 763 B.C. What does that have to do with anything? It was well known, it is well known historically, that these ancient civilizations viewed famines and eclipses as divine signs of looming disaster. They, they were convinced that, that that is how God functioned. Will a disaster get a country back to church? That's a question. Something really bad happens, are people going to come to church for a week or two? Like after 9-11. Yeah, a week or two. A disaster will get you back to church. The thing is, if it isn't a bad one, you're still going to McDonald's every day, you're filling up your car with gas. Over time, you kind of start to forget, right? You might memorialize things, but over time, it's like everything just kind of keeps going on as it is. How about something like a famine? That's something you remember every time you sit down to dinner. That's something that builds up on you. That's something that doesn't go away real quick. And that's something you start really wondering, what is God doing here? And uh, many theologians believe that God used these catastrophic events as signs to prepare the hearts of Nineveh. 
that something was going to happen. Someone was going to come. Preaching was going to arrive and, uh, at the hand of Jonah. But as a patriotic Israelite, Jonah would have both recognized and appreciated, you know, that Nineveh and Assyria, they're on their heels. They would like that. That's good stuff. That's our enemy. They're on their heels. When that faithful call of God came to go preach to them, repentance, well, that explains Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, Nineveh's repentance greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, he tried to hold it off. In order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah wanted the calamity. He wanted to see the bad things happen to Assyria. And we're going to pick up again on this next week, but we already know why Jonah ran. It wasn't because he's afraid of the cruel Assyrians. Yeah, they were bad people, but he wasn't afraid of that. That's not it. Jonah disobeyed and ran because he didn't want to see the Gentiles saved. He didn't want to see mercy triumph over judgment. He just wanted to see some judgment. You reap what you sow. You had it coming. That's what he wanted to see on Assyria and Nineveh. And, and, and we might say today, well, that is horrible. What an awful thing for a person of God to say. You know, uh, what kind of prophet or person would, would keep to themselves a message of repentance that would save others from destruction? What kind of person would do that? Let me ask. Have you boarded a ship to Tarshish lately? Have you noticed someone that the Spirit prompted you to speak a good word of the gospel to? Somewhere, some neighbor, some place, and you knew you were supposed to say it, yet instead you turned, got away in your car, and sailed away? I know what's happened to me. Do we think that Jesus only came to save us? Now think back for a moment on how you came to faith. Think about how you came to know Christ. Either it was through preaching of some kind or something on the radio or someone gave you a gospel tract or someone invited you to church so that you could hear the word of God and, and you came to believe, what if that same person would have, would have turned and sailed to Tarshish? Where would we be if someone hadn't spoken about Christ? I can tell you where I'd be. I'd be up a creek without a paddle. I'd be in bad shape, if, uh, bad shape if people had not brought the word of the Lord to me. All of us would be. What about on a national sense for a country? Is prosperity a reliable indicator that God is on your side? Israel thought it was. They were prospering. Everything must be great with us. God keeps blessing us. Our country's strong. He must really love us. But after looking at what we've seen so far today about Israel, is it possible for a nation to experience prosperity, success in battle, 
financial growth for, for a country to flourish for several decades and yet still be an abomination in the eyes of the Lord because they disobey his word. Is that possible? It is. Israel was prospering, yet God viewed them as wicked. While those who Israel themselves viewed as evil, those they were looking at as evil, those who were suffering famines and plagues, well, God must hate them, right? No. They were actually the ones that God was preparing the hearts to get saved. And they are the ones that God was sending a prophet to speak the word of God to. Well, Israel would eventually end up in exile. <laughs> we really have to think differently. We really have to think differently about what God does, how he does it, and who he does it to. Jonah had let his pride, his nationalism, get in the way of his ministry and obedience. Too often, citizens of a country think that, you know, well, God can't function without them. That's what Israel did. God can't function without us. We're Israel. We're the tribes. We're the chosen ones. No, God will do just fine. He'll do just fine. Israel thought God couldn't move forward with a plan of redeeming his people unless they existed. But in 70 AD, they discovered that God can do just fine for about 1,900 years without the nation of Israel existing. God will do just fine. God isn't dependent upon any nation or any person to advance his plan. He is the self-existent one. He is the great I am. And in Acts 17.24, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He is God. He is God. And one of the major themes that we'll discover throughout this book of Jonah is God's sovereignty. He, he will use whatever he wants to forward his purposes and whomever he wants. He, he might take a great fish if he so chooses. He will use a storm as God so chooses, a famine. He can control the weather. He can control a great fish. He can control a prophet's life if he wants to even when that prophet resists. I saw a great quote from Spurgeon this week. He was talking about the obedience of a believer. A young woman asked the great preacher Charles Spurgeon if it was possible to reconcile God's sovereignty, what he wants to do, with man's responsibility, with what he's asked us to do. And Spurgeon responded, young, young woman, he said, you don't reconcile friends. That's exactly right. You shouldn't have to reconcile, friends. We ought to be at God's work. We ought to be obeying because he has made us into a new creation. We ought to be speaking forth because we're cooperating with God. We're furthering his kingdom. We're obeying his word. There shouldn't be any conflict between his purposes and ours. But what if we resist? Is God suddenly powerless? Some people actually believe that we're sovereign. That we make the choices and God has to follow along. That, that somehow God's just hanging around there hopelessly hoping that someone will join in with him with proclaiming his message. 
That's a very small God. That's not the God of the Bible. God is in control, and he never loses control. We'll learn that in Jonah. But what if a believer continues to resist? Over and over continues to resist. Well, you're liable to get swallowed up by a big old nasty fish. Because we'd rather obey God and uh, learn learn through Jonah how to obey him. I'm going to close with a quote from an English priest, old English priest named George Williams. And uh, the book of Jonah has a lot to say about you, has a lot to say about me, and about how we obey, about how we serve God. And it's very much about people. You know, when we start to look at the Bible, thinking a lot about events, about catastrophic events in history, we think about, I was talking to the guys this week in, in Genesis, we're starting Genesis as a new men's study on Wednesday evenings at 7, starts this week. And we always think that, you know, like Genesis, it's all about creation. Only a small part of Genesis is about creation. Genesis as a whole, it's about people. God is about people. And, and God is concerned about people. God is concerned about Jonah. We'll see that with the, the gentle way that he handles that prophet. And God's concerned about you and me. But George Williams wrote, This book is, a un- is unique in, the, in that it is more concerned with the prophet himself than with his prophecy. The condition of his soul and God's loving discipline of him instruct and humble the reader. What a merciful God we have. Let's pray. Well, dear Father, as we look to Jonah over the coming weeks and months, Lord, and, and look to how you handle people, Lord, uh, how merciful you are, even to those who don't deserve it, Lord. We are so grateful for your grace. Lord, that you can take people who are evil, Lord, by nature sinners and opposed to you, Lord, and change them into repentant souls, Lord, that will uh, honor the name, name above all names. And Lord, we know that uh, there will come a day that every knee will bow uh, on heaven and on earth, Lord, at the name of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we look at this, this book, there's a lot of pictures of Christ in this book, Lord. A storm, asleep in a ship, raging waters, Lord, a prophet speaking truth. Lord, repentance of a bunch of people, Gentiles even. Lord, we're thankful for that. Thankful that you came to us, Lord. Showed us your mercy and your greatness that you've uh, bestowed upon us through Jesus Christ. We pray for your wisdom, Lord, in the, in the coming months as we study this. Lord, that you'll bless it, that you'll change us. Lord, please change us. Make us more like Christ. It's his, in his name we pray. Amen.